This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And away we go. It's the Thanksgiving week Bob Olin Show. Bob, good morning to you. Well, good morning, Dave, and to all our listeners. And we'll start off by wishing everybody a, a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. Lots to be thankful for, including a, a reasonably pretty good growing season that we had here today. Absolutely. And the weather is still pretty, uh, pretty decent considering what we sometimes can see around Thanksgiving. Oh, certainly. You know, typically by Thanksgiving, we've got all the lakes frozen. We've got plenty of <laughs> snow on the ground. And, uh, a little different this year. Sound based on that forecast that I just heard that mm-hmm. we've got about two days here maybe to do a little last minute fall uh, gardening prep, and I there think it'd know. be a good idea. In many cases, you want to get some of your spring flowering bulbs, the tulips, daffodils. Try to get them in the ground before we freeze up. Uh, garlic, if you want to put that in. Uh, you don't have to do a lot of fall tilling in your uh, vegetable flower gardens, but cleaning up a little bit of the debris. Now that's changed a little bit. Uh, we're well aware of the need to leave some areas natural for the pollinating insects, in particular many of our native bees that actually overwinter down in the soil or in some of the plant structures. So you might want to leave a little area. I know I've changed my practices a little bit. I do leave a little area that's open, uh, untilled, and, and just let some of the weedier material grow so that uh, we've got some habitat for some of our native pollinators you know the ones that are real showy dave uh, the butterflies and yeah. so forth are great but uh, the ones that do the real work are these small little native bees and if you've ever been able to observe your harrelson apple and it's in fully b- full bloom mm-hmm. the real pollinators out there doing the work are, are almost uh hard to see a quarter inch or so in length these are all these wow. native bees that are just working like crazy and they overwinter in the soil Right. And uh, soil and some of the plant structures that provide a little insulation for them. So leaving just a little area untilled uh, to support that population is not a bad idea, Dave. All right. Big thank you to the bees. Let's head to the phones already this morning, Bob. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Crystal. Go ahead, Crystal. Uh, I got Good a morning. soil test done. Good morning. I got a soil test done uh, in October, and my pH was 5.1. And... Okay. I'm wondering. I'm wondering. Uh, we heat our house with wood, so we have a lot of wood ash. I'm wondering if I put that on the garden, if that would uh, increase the pH. Oh, it definitely would for you. Now, first, uh, why get a soil test done, and why is to know that uh, your pH is that low? I've got a couple of questions. That's a quite acidic, and um, is this? A, 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 can you tell me about where you're located? And is this a mineral soil or an organic or peat soil that you're working with? I live in Foxborough, Wisconsin. And okay. I, I don't, I guess that it's a okay. lot of organic because I've added stuff to it. Okay, we've added some stuff to it. Is that a lighter, sandier soil there for us? Uh, Would that be a light, sandy soil? I wouldn't say it's sandy, but it's not clay either. Not clay either. Uh, okay, you know, um, when you say you've added, because that's that's a little unusual. You know, we've got these two types of soils. If you're not on peat, so it's not real dark black, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, it's our native garden soils. These are mineral soils, and uh, that's typically not... Uh, that acidic. Now, five uh, 5.0 is a pretty acidic soil. We're going to bring that pH up. I'm just wondering, 
when you added a lot of material, had you added compost or had you added, uh, say, acid sphagnum peat or maybe potting soil mix? Sorry for all the questions, but I'm going to try to come up with a little better answer for you here. Sure, that's okay. Uh, mostly I've added my chopped leaves. That's what I use as mulch. I don't till it in. Okay. I just leave it on top. Okay, okay. So it's mostly just uh, native organic materials, and that shouldn't drop our pH. The reason I'm asking this is, is this uh, is this consistent? Is this our native pH in that soil, or perhaps did we find what we call a hot spot in taking that soil test where you threw some sphagnum peat moss or a potting soil mix? Those tend to be quite acidic, and maybe this doesn't truly reflect the acidic nature of the underlying soil. But it sounds as if uh, you've got a very acidic soil. Uh, you consider growing blueberries. I'll just mention that because a lot of people want to reduce their pH down to that level to get uh, get a pH that's appropriate. But yours seems to be just about there, and that's the native pH. So we are going to bring it up. Did you, on your soil test, did they make a liming recommendation for you? Uh, they did not. I get the soil test done through Logan Labs, not the extension office. I have one other guess to add. There's one section that I just started uh, last year, and that soil, the pH is like 6.2 or something. Okay, that's about 6.2. That's about what I would expect. Now, what was the difference here in in what you're working with? Because I don't want you to put too much wood ash or lime on that. That's tough if you get too much of that on, then bringing it back down again. So what's the difference between the two? locations the one is only a year old and i haven't added i mean it was just the first year so there was no yeah there was nothing where the other one is probably 10 years old that i've been growing in and Mm -hmm. it's um i've added mostly just uh leaves and yeah Well, the new location, uh, that gives me a little idea. That that probably is closer to what your native soils are and what you're working with. It might have been the amendment. So I would say you definitely want to bring your pH up. You're correct. You're, you're very acidic there. We don't know exactly without a soil test uh, recommendation uh, because um, liming agents react differently depending on the chemical composition of the soil. So... Uh, we have what's called a buffering index at typically University of Wisconsin or University of Minnesota give you. So, and, and with that, they incorporate how much lime we should add. But we're going to go out there, and you're going to make um, you're going to make the addition. And uh, anything you do to bring that up somewhat, you may not want to get it to an optimum level. But I would say go ahead and use your wood ash. Wood ash can be more of a liming agent. Um, and without getting too technical, but they have something called the calcium carbonate equivalent, and uh, wood ash has a very high calcium carbonate equivalent. So we're going to be adding uh, a fair amount of wood ash here, but uh, we're not going to overdo. So maybe you look at uh, 20 pounds over 1,000 square feet, something like that. And uh, and then uh, work it in and let it, uh, let it come into equilibrium over the... Uh, winter time and uh, in the next year, and get a, let's get another soil test and see where that pH is at. Let me ask you, how has your garden produced for you with an acidic pH like that? Have you been fairly satisfied with the results? I, I have. I grow about probably 26 different vegetables. I'm a grower for the Superior Farmer's Market, so I grow oh, okay. a lot okay. of variety. And yeah, you grow a lot of different things. things. 
Yeah, I would uh, I would say you're getting good results. See, I'm a little bit suspicious of that low pH. What came out there? Is that test accurate? Does it really reflect? That's why I'm going to say let's let's not put too much wood ash or lime on there until we're absolutely sure. I I think maybe another soil test even now before we freeze up to confirm that result would not be a bad idea because that's so much lower than what your native pH is, and you can get into trouble by adding too much wood ash or too much lime. It's tough. To, it's not so hard to bring it up, but to bring that pH down can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge. We got to go with acidifying fertilizers or something to bring it down, uh, sulfurs. But um, my thought would be uh, let's be a little careful about the wood ash that goes on there because I, I am a little bit suspicious that that pH is a little bit artificial for some reason because it's so much different than what your native soil is, and it doesn't sound like you're adding anything that would acidify. Uh, once composted, this might be a, one thing. Uh, uncomposted leaves you compost first. Uncomposted leaves give you some intermediate acids, and that may be why we've got a pH that's that low. So my thought would be this. If you want to add a little wood ash, be very light. I would take away my recommendations based on what I know now, and I'd spread just a little bit on the surface, uh, work that in. You're getting good results. And I would be at some point soil testing again because I am a little bit suspicious of uh, what that that pH is at. I think uh, that may be artificially low and doesn't reflect the true nature. If you were... um, at that low of a pH, you would not be getting good results on a lot of your crops uh, because nutrients aren't available. So kind of a complex answer. Does all of that make sense to you? <laughs> it does, yes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you yeah, for the thank call. Thank wow. Okay. A little bit of a discussion. There's yeah. a, lot of, uh, a lot of soil test chemistry, and I was suspicious, Dave, quite honestly, of that low of pH on a mineral soil. We don't typically see it. As she indicated, a new area she's opened up, is that's more what we would expect. So I think either she picked up a hot spot when she was uh, uh, soil test that, or the soil test results were not accurate for one reason or another. More than likely, the soil test results were accurate, but the, the sampling process was not. So we're going to uh, we're going to stay away from liming agents until we're sure of where we're at and what caused that low pH. Okay. Very good. All right, we'll take a break, Bob, and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show, nine twenty-seven here on a Tuesday morning from KDAO. All right, you can also text in your questions by calling that number, apparently, 722-0839. If you got a text question for Bob, I'll pass that along to him. Bob, this is Thanksgiving week, and apparently we're going to spend $61.17 on your typical Thanksgiving meal, which I imagine you can bring down a little bit if you grow your own uh, stuff. Well, you definitely can. Uh, You know, the interesting thing, and we're going to talk turkey a little bit here, because... uh, we're really lucky. We're in the Midwest where we produce a lot of what goes into a Thanksgiving meal. And I guess when you look at that figure, if you're feeding a number of people and you compare that with a restaurant bill these days, uh, that isn't so bad. And there's always some leftovers and so forth. And uh, you definitely can bring that down with a few items there. Mm-hmm. But the turkey itself, it's kind of interesting. This year's turkey prices are down a little bit. Yep. And I appreciate that information. They're going to average average about one twenty seven uh, a pound for turkey, uh, but you can buy it a little bit cheaper than that. There are lost leaders and other things out there, and that's down about twenty percent from last year when wow. uh, we had some bird flu that went through and uh, the turkey supply was somewhat limited last season. 
you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, I don't know exactly how this happened, but uh, Minnesota is the largest turkey-producing state <laughs> in the nation. We'll produce about 40 million birds, and not all of which we're going to consume uh, in the state here or in the Midwest. Some of those are exported. They're moved around the country. But number one in terms of turkey production, and that started just because uh, there was a time when corn prices were very, very low, and farmers could not make any money growing corn, and yet we could grow quite a bit of it in the southern part of the state. And so a group got together and said, well, how can we add some value? Let's try to run it through uh Chickens were tried, and turkeys turned out to be a little better crop because uh, the chicken industry is pretty well established in the South. So anyway, uh, Minnesota became uh, the number one uh, turkey producer, been in that role for a number of years. Uh, production, and the in- it's kind of interesting because I happened to look this up in 1949. We were only producing a little over 3 million birds, and all of a sudden now we're up to 40 million. So about wow. 10 times as many uh, turkeys have been produced over that time. So we're number one there, but uh, let's take a look at some of the other crops. Uh, If we take a look at uh, potatoes, now we've got a huge, in Minnesota, a huge potato production area in the uh, Red River Valley where you can see potatoes being produced from horizon to horizon. But guess what? Minnesota doesn't really rank among the the top 10 uh, potato producers. Number one would be Idaho, the Idaho russet, of course. People are familiar with that. Number two, the state of Washington, where they got a tremendous amount of irrigated land. And I guess who's number three right up there, Dave? Wisconsin. Wisconsin <laughs> is. Lots of potato production in Wisconsin. And I've I lived I in potato country for many for many years. Oh, did you really what what part of the state uh, right Dave? in the middle there in the Antigo area. Antigo, yes. Mm-hmm. They've got uh they've got a tremendous amount of uh potato production there. And I've actually been out and visited some of those areas. Wisconsin has a big breeding program, so potatoes are a major crop, major agriculture. It's mm-hmm. not just cheese in Wisconsin, is it? It's, uh, <laughs> it certainly is potatoes. Not just cheese That's and beer, we're talking potatoes, too, yeah. <laughs> I just got to have french fries with that, huh? Yeah. And, of course, most of the potatoes, that's what goes into processing. It is the number one horticultural crop, and that's... Mainly because uh, it's going into all the processed products. Fries being number one, and that's uh, why Idaho is uh, so far ahead of uh, farmer by the name of Simplot. Uh, got the big, fast uh, frozen uh, French fry contract, and actually, I think he was instrumental in bringing fries to some of the fast food uh, outlets, uh, in particular McDonald's, and built the fortune. And it's real interesting. He started the semiconductor industry in Boise. Took their money from potatoes, put it in semis, and people. <laughs> You've got a computer in front of you. It's Micron Tech, the last of the uh, uh, major semiconductor uh, memory manufacturers in the U.S., and that all came from potatoes. So Idaho became big, but it was the process, uh, number one, fries, number two, chips, and, of course, may not be the most nutritious. The potato itself is a, is a nutritious, nutritious crop, and most of what we're going to be having will be mashed, and uh, this is where the good nutrition and the good flavor really comes with. But... Wisconsin, number three in the country, so congratulations there. I don't think people are aware of that. But you're number one in another one of the real favorite crops, <laughs> and you want to take a guess well, at I that? know there's a lot of cranberries in Wisconsin. Man, cranberries. Now, I was really surprised. Wisconsin, not yeah. only are you number one, really? but you produce half of all the cranberries in the whole country. How about that? Uh, yeah, so cranberries is a great big item, followed by uh, Massachusetts. Those are the two big states, and a few other states trickle in. But it's really Wisconsin uh, that produces the cranberries. Very interesting crop, and depends on 
you know, the, uh, the, the production systems of the water that's available and so forth. So that's, that's really going to be uh, absolutely huge. Another big one that I find maybe we get a little chance to talk about this one, uh, these are the pumpkins, which we can grow ourselves and we can make our own pie, of course. And uh, this one startled me a little bit because <laughs> in Minnesota we had a major pumpkin brand called Festel. I don't know if that rings a bell with you at all, yeah. Dave, but mm-hmm. uh, a ton of pumpkin. And we always had a couple of big name brands out there on the sure. store shelves. We had Libby's and we had Festel, and there was always this discussion they're all a little bit different. They have a little bit different color, texture, and flavor. And there were some advocates that just loved the Festival brand and others that preferred the Libby, and it was kind of interesting. And uh, But as it turns out, uh, this was in southern Minnesota where they were producing the pumpkins and canning them. And that's uh, fortunately kind of gone away, and uh, maybe someone can correct me, but I even think the Festival name brand may have gone away. It was oh, really? A few years ago. Yeah, it was just a few years ago that... that um, Festival became kind of a uh, a gourmet item. I had a niece in California, and she asked me if I could find any Festival uh, <laughs> pumpkin because it became a real specialty item for them out in, in California. And uh, sure, I could find them. Just went out to the local supermarket. Yeah. And it was everywhere. And bought it and shipped it to her. <laughs> now I think that that's gone through a transition. I know that the Watana Canning doesn't stand alone any longer, and... My information, they're not making uh, pumpkin uh, filling at that point. A lot of these small companies get bought up by the bigger companies, so who knows? That's right. There's Mm. so much transition, and then the the bigger companies kind of eliminate some of the operations that may not be as profitable for them. So sadly, maybe we lost one there and lost the festival brand. But nonetheless, I think that... uh, very interesting because uh, where every state in the nation produces a little, you know, produce some potatoes, they produce some cranberries and so forth. Many of them do. But in the case of pumpkins, the interesting thing is Illinois has got about 95% of all the pumpkins wow. uh, produced in the United States down in Illinois. And most of that is processed, and it goes into the canned pumpkin that we make our pumpkin pie out of. All right. So um, Morton, Illinois, is, is kind of the capital of all the pumpkin production, and the big boy out there is still Libby's and a few of these other name brands. There's still a lot of product. Uh, there's some store brands that are out there, and they're all just a little bit different. Uh, so you can still find uh, a number of different brands out there, but they'll mix and they'll try to come up with something that's a little bit unique and appeals to someone's particular taste. So uh, I mentioned uh, color, flavor, and texture are the three big things that uh, that uh, go into canned and processed pumpkin. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is uh, everyone's perhaps a favorite, and uh, most of this quote-unquote pumpkin is typically squash. There's a lot of butternut squash that goes in there, and so there's a real interesting combination. And uh, actually, uh, the genetics are are pretty interesting on these things, but uh, a lot of our pie pumpkins are not squash, not butternut squash. Butternut squash is a little bit different species, but all these winter squash have a real nice, fine texture, and many of them can be used if you want to can be used in making your own uh, pumpkin pie. You make it, and uh, maybe after the break, we'll uh, walk you through that process a little bit because it's kind of fun. (laughs) We had a pretty good squash year. We had a good pumpkin year, and people may have a few of those uh, that they like to try 
making some of their own pumpkin puree for the family pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving Day. Before we head off to the break, i got another call to get to. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Pat from South Range. Go ahead, Pat. Hey, hello, Pat. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. A good question for you. Is it time to cover strawberries? Oh, now there is a good question. I would say we've got a cold spell coming up, and I would get them covered, yes. We want to protect okay. the flower blooms, so we don't want temperatures. I think this is going to be cold. When we look at the lower 20s, uh, we we like them exposed to some frost, and we've had some of that already. Not a lot, so it's been fairly warm. But uh, we really we don't want them exposed when the temperature dips down uh, below 20, certainly. So I think at this point, in the next couple of days before this cold spell moves in, uh, I would definitely get them covered, Pat. Very good question. Good. Thank you. Yeah, we, and we I've noticed our, our the 20s. Yeah. Yes, and they didn't. Uh, they came a little earlier, but the last uh, week or so has been very, very warm. I did notice just the other day we got a couple commercial uh, strawberry producers, and they are covering at this point. So they wait, and they're covering right now, and they're busy. So I would say, go ahead. Let's let's cover things, Pat. Okay, great. Thanks very much, and you have a nice Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks Thank for the call. Yep. Let's take a break now. We'll be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show. Bob, we were talking about all the things grown locally for the uh, Thanksgiving feast, including the turkeys and the pumpkin pie and the potatoes and the cranberries. I would imagine the beans for the green bean casserole is probably uh, grown in southern Minnesota. They're in the Valley of the Jolly Green Giant. You are absolutely right. (laughs) Uh, These uh, huge... uh, Green bean production area down in Lesseur County and the home of Green Giant, of course, and big canning facility there. So, yes, that's one of the uh, one of the real centers. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> I just love the Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a nice holiday. You know, oh, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> too much about uh, uh, gifts and other things. You just get everybody together and have a great big meal, and everyone contributes a little something. So, uh, you know, it's kind of standardized. You look at uh, turkey. And people do all kinds of things, of course, to, mm-hmm. to uh, satisfy their own particular taste. But nonetheless, turkey, uh, pumpkin pie, cranberries, potatoes, and um, that green casserole salad. And uh, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of standardized items, but they're all delicious, and I'm looking forward to, to all of that. But <laughs> green beans, you're right, a fairly easy crop to grow. It's kind of interesting. You know, those were all pole beans at one time that would up and... Actually, they really started selecting for these shorter beans because they can be mechanically harvested. So, wow. you know, we're picking green beans. We plant a lot of them. They're easy to grow. They're pretty time-consuming to pick. So uh, I think they went uh, from a bush blue lake pole to uh, a bush blue lake, uh, the pole bean down to a bush, and a lot of that was uh, selected for mechanical harvest. So a lot of them are picked up by machine right now and then run into the processing plant, uh, both frozen and canned. So they're uh, they're really a part of the Thanksgiving uh, meal as well, Dave. Right, and we got Christmas trees to think about. Usually, a lot of folks put up their tree uh, you know, right after Thanksgiving. I notice some of the uh, local uh, tree farmers are putting their items up for sale now. Absolutely, and you know the weather can change. People mm-hmm. get moved when we get a little snow and colder temperatures, and this can make, this can all change in a hurry. We're getting late as the calendar moves along, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if. Uh, if we have winter pretty quickly, we're kind of watching things. I like that uh, question about mulching in the strawberries. Uh, you're yeah. going to get a 
this may be the year. In, in the last two years, we've had early snow before we got any cold temperatures at bare ground right now. And we'd like to get a couple of inches of snow on top of that before we get the extremely cold temperatures. If we don't typically do that, then you will want to mulch in certainly your strawberries where those flower buds are sitting up. Uh, they've already set up, and we've got to get them through the winter. They're a little bit tender, so that's why we're putting a good straw mulch on top of that. Um, typically, um, you know, the last couple of years, you could uh, put your tulip bulbs in, and, and they came through beautifully, some of the real tender bulbs. This may be the year where you want to get a little bit of straw out there. If you've got a septic system that's vulnerable, I think of this, because anytime we get those extreme freezes, anyone that's rural can have some septic issues. Get a little straw on some of those lines if they're not deep enough. Uh, get them protected a little bit as well. This may be the year when we really get that deep frost penetration. You know, we had such a, an interesting growing season because we came from record snowfalls to record drought. <laughs> And then, um, and then now we're back up where we've got more moisture than than average. So there's plenty of moisture down in the ground. It'd be really nice, you know. We can keep it there, and and uh, we can use it next spring if we can get a little snow on the top, so we just don't drive that frost in uh, too deep. But we're not, we don't have too much to say about that. We'll have to see how this one unfolds for us this year. But get some straw out there. Uh, if you're going to use leaves, a big pile of leaves is okay as well, but uh, we like to put them in what we call a pillow pack so that we retain the insulating value of leaves, but something to protect if we get an extremely uh, cold period. They're talking a lot about El Nino. I guess it's going to be a little bit milder um, this year than it has been yeah. the past, but uh, we'll have to we'll have to see how this whole thing unfolds. A little snow for Christmas is what we're all hoping for, and this is what our Christmas tree industry is hoping for as well because it gets people into the spirit of it for yeah. sure. Uh, I know the extended forecast, I think, for uh, December, January, February is warmer than normal temperatures, but, again, that's average, so I'm sure we'll get a few cold snaps in there as well. That's right. Averages can really be uh, deceiving. You know, we had just kind of an average growing year this last year, and it was all over the place from hot and dry <laughs> to moist and wet, and it uh, and yet it turned out to be right, right around average. average <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the same thing may be the case. We can get the snowy periods there. We can get very cold periods as well, and we'll just have to see how it how it does unfold. It's always kind of interesting. You know, I did mention I get the question about people about pie pumpkins and Halloween pumpkins and yeah. uh, real quickly here. Uh, the And we had the record-setting pumpkin, of course, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, was grown down in, I believe, Anoka County there on, on some of their hotter sands. And uh, we've got a little reputation going right there. What did they on weigh about uh, 2,700 pounds or something like that? Yeah, day? just under 3,000, I think. And they, they're selling the seeds now if you want to try to beat the 3,000-pound uh, mark. Yeah, selling the seeds, and I'm sure those are not cheap. And, no. Uh, I, I do recall it cost him $15,000 to raise that, so wow. I'm not sure what he was feeding. But that, if you think your garden's expensive, right. <laughs> a real expensive pumpkin when he got done with it. And I imagine that takes up a lot of space, too, in your garden, I would guess. Yeah, for most folks, of course, you need to, you need room to, uh, and <laughs> it's probably not the most if you've got a limited amount of space, probably not the most sensible crop to grow because uh, you get about one or two plants. Right. But nonetheless, they're kind of fun if you've got pie pumpkins. What's the difference between a pie and a Halloween pumpkin? Well, they're both pumpkins, uh, cucurbit, papo, but the uh, the big difference is the little pie pumpkins are, they've been selected and they've been bred for higher sugar content, a little smoother texture. So 
you can make your pumpkin pie out of any one of these if you like, but with the uh, ornamental pumpkins, and of course, if you carved it and the qualities of the flesh has gone down, you don't want to consider that. But if you still got one that wasn't carved, you certainly can make a pumpkin pie filling out of it. Uh, you just might have to add a little more sugar. You might have to uh, uh, puree it a little bit more. And, mm. you know, typically you're going to take all of these. It's kind of a fun activity if you got time, and I'm not sure who has time, time and kids or grandkids. Right. And uh, if you want to make your own pumpkin pie filling, uh, it's kind of fun. I make a few a year. I make them out of squash. I make them out of pumpkin, and I let people try try the difference. And so much of flavor is related to certainly the underlying uh, vegetable, but also, uh, you know, the type of spices that you use and that combination and making the puree. You're going to bake this up like you'd bake a squash, and then you're going to uh, scoop the flesh out, of course, and you're going to run it through a food processor or blender of some type. And then in many cases, you're also going to come along and strain that a little bit so you get a nice smooth puree because uh, some of the ornamental pumpkins and some of your squash, the texture is not particularly appealing, but you can work that down with uh, a food processor. So the, you, you've got a lot of variability. It's fun. I did a taste test one year and tried a number of squash as well as pie pumpkins. And uh, uh, the individual taste is very subjective. So they all came out about about even, to be honest. Some people preferred the pie pumpkin. Some people preferred the squash. But it all works out uh, pretty good in the end, and they're all edible, and all can make a pretty good uh, pie for you. And it's kind of a it's kind of a fun activity, certainly. And you do get a little bit more benefit from the harvest in your in your vegetable gardens, Dave. Well, now besides the uh, the pumpkin or the squash making the pie, you've got to add these uh, seasonings, I would guess, or the spice. What do you use there to get the pumpkin spice flavor? Is there such a thing as pumpkin well, spice? Well, there is actually, and yeah. they'll they'll mix them. And I just happened to uh, I put my my spice because I'll use some of the mix, but okay. I also I think cinnamon is cinnamon uh-huh. is one of the key key items I think that makes them good. And then usually there's a little bit of cloves in there, and uh, and typically um, there's also a little ginger. So it's a uh-huh. combination of probably cinnamon, cloves, and ginger. Uh, I think those are the three spice elements that principally go into a pumpkin pie mix. And sometimes I, I will use all three because I, I kind of like to get a little different flavor so I can cook my own. But uh, mm-hmm. if I'm in a hurry, I will just grab for the uh, the mix and you, they're available on all supermarket uh, shelves. So the pumpkin pie spice mix, I think, does contain all those. I personally prefer a little bit more cinnamon than mm-hmm. some of the other components. But uh so spicing it up and the color is significant and then the texture. And those are the three things that really uh, can make your individual pie uh, a, a little bit uh, more distinctive, a little bit unique. Uh, and I've got a friend that keeps trying every year, and he makes <laughs> his very unique. He won't share his secret with oh, me. Oh, yeah. He has, he has fun doing it, and it's kind of a proprietary uh, family affair for him, and he has he has fun with it for sure. Well, the thing is, uh, you can – I'm flavored pumpkin spice almost anything now. It seems that's the trend all of a sudden is to get everything flavored like pumpkin spice. Yeah. Including pumpkin right. spice and ice cream, I noticed. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, some, some of that, now everyone's tastes a little different. I'd prefer right. my pumpkin spice in the pumpkin pie, but other, <laughs> other folks yeah. really, uh, uh, like it. And, of course, Halloween's become that great big yeah. Uh, festival. We almost lost Thanksgiving in between. It seems like we went from Halloween decorations to Christmas decorations, right. and uh, 
for my uh, my time and effort, I really enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday that's coming up. Uh, eating's good. We're very fortunate. Again, the price of turkey's down a little bit uh, this year, so that's good. And it's all uh, relatively inexpensive when you look at the, the very high quality of the, the protein that you get in in your turkeys as well as the great nutrition that comes from the potatoes, the squash, the pumpkin, and the, and the green beans, of course. So great, great meal coming out. And cranberries, can't forget those. <laughs> I right. really enjoy those as well, Dave. And uh, it's kind of fun here. We did learn a little bit about uh, where all this is produced. Right. Certainly Minnesota and Wisconsin are right at the core of that Thanksgiving meal that's coming up here. So that's all fun, and I hope everyone certainly can enjoy uh, that experience. Friends, family, and good food. Yep. And a little football. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's an awfully nice combination. And a day off from work, that's a real nice combination <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, it's good the bird flu has kind of subsided somewhat, so the turkey supply is out there. I remember last year the uh, uh, Thanksgiving uh, buffet that they have at the deck every year usually has turkey. And last year they went to ham. Yeah, they did. There wasn't a surplus. Right. And, uh, again, all the people that contribute to all of that, that's a nice part of giving oh, absolutely. back. absolutely. But uh, you're absolutely right. There was a shortage, and that's why the price of turkey went up. And, uh, you know, you got confined birds like that in many cases, and you can have a, a major disease issue that goes through. I think they get that under control lots yeah. of different ways. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they had to rebuild herds and so forth. But uh, we're in better shape this year than we were last year. And I hope they've got some turkey for folks because it's part of the tradition. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Bob, have a great Thanksgiving yourself, and we'll catch you next Tuesday. Absolutely, and a great uh, Thanksgiving to all of our uh, loyal listeners out there. Uh, I hope that everyone's safe and and has just a a joyous time with friends and family. Thank you, Bob. We'll be back again next Tuesday here on KDIL with another Bob Olin Show. Weather forecast is coming up for you next. (laughs) 